There you go. All right, let's pray, and then uh, off we go. <clears throat> Lent 5, uh, Palm Sunday coming up. Here we go. Christ says, for their sake I consecrate myself, so I set myself aside in a holy way, that they also may be consecrated, set aside in truth. So the most important thing is always to tell the truth that goes with holiness um, and light and all good things. John 17, 19, Christ says, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be consecrated in truth. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who in your Son has given us a pioneer of salvation and made him the true and eternal high priest and mediator for his people, grant, we beg you, that we hold fast to him in love, learn obedience in his discipleship, and so be brought into the heavenly sanctuary through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, good to see all of you. Uh, you know, Lent is... Lent has its own way of sort of uh, wearing us out, and, but it also always gives way to such a wonderful time. I'll give you a heads up in advance so in case I forget. I know we're going to forget this and you're all going to go to your knees, but at Easter, you don't kneel during Easter. You have these low periods of the church or kind of fasting periods of the church, and you have periods of great joy. Kind of the ultimate thing is, uh, you know, you always kneel in the church, and then Easter comes and we don't kneel. So you and I will all have to remember that at the point of the... Uh, you know, confession as well as the point of the Eucharist. We're just used to it now to kneeling. We are too, and we, you know, sometimes we forget. But, um, you know, you have a fast and then you have a feast, so the feast is on its way. Uh, a couple of things to think about. Hand that around if you would. If you've got a little money, throw it in the basket. The money will go this time to, remember the Russians every year, they try to run a summer camp for kids. They take them out in the middle of nowhere. And last year, the year before, we helped them um, buy some land in the middle of a national forest, and they take kids there. And this, uh, you know, the, the pastor that uh, we support there is a maniac. You know, he teaches them to crawl around in caves, and they repel. And his wife is a is a is a doctor, but she's very much oppressed because she won't do abortions in the Soviet system, which is a primary way of birth control. So therefore, she doesn't get much work. And But, you know, she's at the bottom, and if a kid gets a gash, you know, she stitches them up and sends them back up the rope. It's the craziest thing. I mean, you wouldn't... But they get all these kids out, and they give them uh, the little baby Jesus for a week. Anyway, we've been supporting that for some years, and uh, somehow I, I and you, we've always been able to kind of find $10,000 a year. So they always write me and say, you know, can you send us another $10,000? So we'll try to figure out a way to do that. And I've been talking to other pastors, and... Somehow, you know, we mostly get it done. So we'll work at that. If you throw some money in the basket, it goes to the Russian. Um, it's kind of a VBS on steroids, I guess. So, uh, <laughs> yes, Karen Crawford. No, you do. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I, yes, you still kneel at the rail to receive the elements. You, uh, we kneel at confession, and then we kneel for the prayers before the consecration, right? You're all kneeling from the sanctus. We all kneel, holy, holy, holy. We all kneel after that. And then there's a prayer, and then uh, the Lord's Prayer and the words of institution. We won't kneel there, but we will go ahead and kneel for the Eucharist, um, you know. But it just marks, you know, the church marks time. It marks attitude. It marks change. It marks goodness, you know. And I've tried to, as much as I can, reflect to you that Lent is this very, very good time. This whole notion that Jesus purifies us and 
less can be more and we build, you know, we build disciplines and it's, it's good for you to be generous. It's good to say your prayers. And the church sets out this time and it, you know, for a thousand years, for almost 2,000 years, it's set aside this time of discipline. And yet there are these kind of cool things that happen. Like in the fourth week, you just take a little bit of a break because if you've really been keeping your discipline, it can get a bit raw for you. Or, you know, when you get to Easter, you make sure that you know that the, there's an exclamation point on the end of your Lenten discipline, that it's helped you and it's rejoicing and it's feasting, and you can't do better than the Lord is risen from the dead. So uh, I, was, I spoke too broadly, Karen. We won't kneel at the point of the confession or at the point of the prayers before the Eucharist, but we will kneel for the Eucharist. I just, um, I'm terribly afraid. And we actually took it out of the bulletin, but I don't think a lot of you use the bulletin, actually. You know, it's in your head, which is great. That's what we were aiming for. But, of course, now that you're... So partly, you know, the church teaches you to do things, and then whenever it interrupts you, you have to think to yourself, now, why did we do that? And there's always a reason for that. Why we, when there's a change, there's a reason for it. The reason is going to be for those 50 days between Easter and Ascension, that's just it. We just couldn't be happier. Life is really good. By the way, did you hear the, like, um, under six buzz in the first service? Could you, just, could you just hear that background, kind of like that hummy buzz thing? It's not silence, but it's really good. I, there were so many little kids in there. It was really, all the older kids are away and doing stuff. But it's, I mean, that's a really good sound. That background sound of kids just kind of jostling around. That's the sound you want in church. That's a nice sound. The word is wonderful. It, it, it is wonderful. You're exactly right. It is a wonderful sound. And there were just, I mean, there are little kids everywhere, and they're all finding each other, and it's just so, so nice. I mean, so incur- I was thinking to myself this morning, you know, we purposely didn't put a nursery in because we purposely didn't want kids to leave the service. It's too easy to put kids in a nursery. We want kids in the service. They're extraordinarily well-behaved, and just that little buzz that lets you know that they're there that's really, really good. You want that. It just it makes the place feel alive. Um, and even there are times when it's dead silent. I'm always, curious to, I'm always curious, you know, how can it be so silent? It's really quite remarkable that you put, you know, 20 or 30 kids under the age of 5 or 6 in there, and it's that quiet, really. It says a lot about the kids and the parents and you. So, you know, congratulations. And it's very, very nice, and it's very welcoming. And most parents would like to keep their kids in. What most parents are afraid of is not their kids. They're afraid of you. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to say about them. But if you say only nice things about them, then they're not afraid of you anymore, right? So anyway, congratulations. That's very nice. It was very, you're very uncool, and congratulations on that. That's a very interesting little piece, wasn't it? Especially that's written by a 30-year-old. Uh, you know, what we need to do is, see, the thing is, we don't want to lower our standards. It's like, it's like I say to the guys that working at the altar. There's this kind of easy elegance or it's sort of it's reverence but not rigid you you want to come to church and you want to pay attention to what you're doing and we help you do that you know we dress up and we have candles and we kneel and we stand but we're not this it's not this the church dies when it's always like this when it's like it was this morning and there's this buzz and people are happy and people are finding their way what we have to do is not get slovenly or not you know not not pay attention we need to pay attention but you know, it's the way you love your kids. Your kids know that you're solid and you have standards, but they also know you're not going to blow them up if something goes wrong. There's that middle ground, and that's exactly what we're trying to find, right? So, you know, we don't want all our music to be off note, you know, but off key. We don't want all our music to stumble around, but 
Some can, and that's okay. Not all of it, you know. So. Yeah, the front article on the bulletin. It's a very nice, when you get to church, read the front article. It's a 30-year-old uh, woman who is blogging along, trying to explain. Uh, it basically, postmoderns have this sense that every, the last generation is trying to sell them something. <laughs> and uh, if church gets to be too cool, you know, then, then they feel like they're being manipulated. And manipulating people is the worst thing you can do to them. I mean, there are leadership styles that lead by manipulation. That's, it may, you may get your way, but that's not salutary. Um, so, you know, I still hold out, although I've been sorely disappointed many times, that honesty is a great way to go. The problem with honesty is you don't always get your way, but it's still honesty. Um, and honesty does uh, provide for a better world. Uh, it's the simplest acid test for what's Jesus. Light is Jesus. Darkness is not Jesus. It's that simple. If it comes in the light and it grows and it flourishes and it gets bigger, like, you know, your tulips are, your grass, everything right now, comes into the light and it flourishes, that's the way of Jesus. If it has to hide in the darkness, that's the way of Satan. Okay? It's just that simple. Okay. Uh, Oh, yeah. Let's see. Marty. Marty, where's that thing? Marty. Do you have it? Byron, okay, so there's a clipboard going around. One of the most fun things and maybe one of the best witnesses we had is, do you remember last year when we all cleaned up the yard all day long and there was like 120 people here? That was so much fun. And we got a ton of pop from the neighborhood. People were saying, it's so good to see all those people out there working together, cooperating, having fun, blah, blah. Um, You know, we probably don't have that much to do like we did that day when many of you put in 10 and 12-hour days and there were over 100 people here. But if we get 50 people out, you know, from 8 in the morning till noon, what we want to do is lay a good base, get everything cleaned up, ready to go. So then the garden club, they sort of keep it going and put the finish in touch. They kind of put the bow on the package. But what we want to do, it's, I mean, we have two square blocks, so we've got to get everything kind of, you know, looking nice. So when the garden club goes out, they have maintenance and not huge amounts of new work to do. So the date is the last Saturday in April. Is that right? Last Saturday in April from like 8 to noon. There'll be coffee and donuts or something in the morning. There'll be burgers or something at noon. Um, you know, if you bring beer, nobody will criticize you. They'll probably still be your friend. Really, really good friend, you know. You're my friend. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, anyway, if you can come and sign up. And anything you can do, you don't have to be, you know, We'll assign people, and you can do what you want to do, and it'll be fun, and life will be good. All right? Good? Russia, yard stuff, feasting, kids, Easter, no kneeling, anything else. That's all part of being church together. So what I want you to be able to do is when you, look at the, when you look at the cross, I want you to be able to think more things and different things than you did before. That's kind of the goal. And that would mean that you're looking at the cross as looking through the cross and not just looking at the cross. So uh, what's, uh, there are two or three or four artists in the room who do things professionally. And whenever I say, what is this? They, they don't always speak up, but I get long, long emails and links from them, <laughs> and, which is really cool because I learn a lot of stuff. Plus... They do all the research, and they just tell me stuff. So, um, you know, last got, uh, you know, a a good bit on 
remembering always that the, and I would summarize it this, this way, that the, an icon is a window, not a mirror. And it tells you about Jesus, not about yourself. And it takes you somewhere else, doesn't leave you where you are. Then I got a very nice link this week um, from a lot of, there, were, there, there was a discussion somewhere in a chat room about why, yes, there are chat rooms like this too, talking about why Orthodox icons, while they may be a bit more stark, are not bloody. And the Orthodox person who was writing was saying, his suggestion was, that um, coming out of the, into the Renaissance, that there was, um, so this, you know, your 1500s, Luther time, there was much more emphasis on emotion in the West than there was in the East. And so uh, art, work, and even icons began to reflect that emotion. And so there was, it, basically his point was in the West, icons do show more pain, emotion, uh, more, let's just say first artwork. Artwork in the West shows more pain and emotion and that even affected icons which usually don't show that. And then there was also the suggestion that while icons in the West uh, are given to much more um, of the humanity, it goes with emotionalism and with pain and with blood and with gore, in the East there's a much more ethereal, calm notion that always shows Jesus willingly going to his death for you. Now, of course, you always have to hold those two, two things together, the divine nature highlighted in the East, the human nature highlighted in the West, if in fact that's true. Uh, but it is at least interesting, and it may be an answer to things like, why is there not a crown of thorns East or West? That's just too much emotionalism. It's too much gore. That's not what the icon is meant for. Or why does Jesus seem so serene in most icons? because of the way the icon is to be used. It's a window into the divine, and the divine things get um, emphasized. Now, of course, you don't, it's not completely that, because you do, of course, have him bleeding, and God doesn't bleed until God takes a human nature, right? So you do have some of that, but things, it's a, it's a tool, and word breathed out by the Holy Spirit kind of tool, in the way that scripture is a tool. You have to be careful when you talk the way, but it means something like that. So my goal would be that when you look at the icon, you think about the cross, the crucifix, the crucifixion, Jesus, in a different way. So last week, for example, um, if you look at this, and we started by, and I'm at point nine here. I'm just going to pick this up a little bit. Um, no, uh, Father, forgive them. They don't, know, they, they, they don't know what they're doing. Okay, so here's the deal. Yes, um, Father, forgive them. They don't what they're doing, that reflects the crucifixion, how horrible human beings are. Here's another thing you talked about from last week. You don't have to be angry. When you look at the crucifix, it, one of the things that it means is you don't have to be angry. This is a very unjust thing that happens here. A holy, innocent person, holy, H-O, like holy, hallowed, holy, and also completely holy, an innocent person gets a false trial and an execution for no good reason other than he threatened the powers of darkness who manipulated everybody. So this is what happens to the light, and it's the most in, unjust thing that ever happened. And yet, if you look at that, and now you start to think about questions like, why does he seem so calm? Why does he seem so ethereal? Why does he seem so reconciled? Why does he glow? 
Why, do you can't, why can't you tell whether he's actually starting to die or starting to live? The reason is it's supposed to prompt you to think of other things besides the fact that soldiers are putting nails through him. And one of the things you can think about is you don't need to be angry when somebody does something unjust to you. Why? Because Jesus wasn't angry. So Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing means his forgiveness is waiting there in advance. So you never ask yourself, will I forgive somebody or not? So part of what the icon means to you is you're always in forgiveness mode. Forgiveness is always waiting. It's accessed, of course, by confession. It's like, you know, confession pokes the balloon and the water spills out all over you. But think of other things, like not just they killed Jesus and that wasn't just. Yeah, that's kind of first level. But beyond that is the very practical thing of forgiveness always waits in advance. So here, I'll just give you a little, I'll just give you a little thing. Think of somebody who um, really, really hurt you. Ready? One, two, three, go. Just think of somebody who really hurt you. Pause. Now ask yourself, how often do you think about that person? So say it was a good friend, say it was a parent, say it was an ex in any direction. You really, really were hurt. But then the, the litmus test is, how often does that person come to mind? Every morning? Every night? Five times a day? Because what happens, every time that person comes to mind, you only have so many heartbeats, and your discomfort, anger, even hatred for that person is using up a life that is meant to be given into service of Christ. Okay. So part of what the icon is telling you is even when you suffer unjustly, you don't need to be angry. In fact, anger is a waste of life. You can't be doing, if you're angry, you can't be, you know, doing something else that would be much more productive. Does that make sense to you? So the obvious thing, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, means human beings do stupid things. We already knew that. You might have some experience with stupid, stupid people who've done stupid, stupid things, and sometimes they've done them to you. Beyond that is, forgive them because forgiveness is always waiting. Hey, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them because they're really, really stupid. I mean, that's what colloquially the text is. Father, forgive them. They're really, really stupid. Please forgive them. But does Jesus look angry? He doesn't look angry at all. And if he's not angry, you don't need to be angry because you lived the Jesus life. Karen, please. He was very angry with the money changers in the temple. Um, two things. Um, there was a tagline in the sermon today, which I, 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 I won't say I stole it from Pastor Gaines. If you're listening, this is your credit. Where We were talking about the money. We actually were talking about the back, kind of back and forth and about the money changers last week or the week before. Um, the Pope had a quote where he said, Jesus is not a violent man, and to read that story as if he were a violent man is to misread the story because violence always dehumanizes. So what are you going to do with the fact that Jesus is tipping over the tables and driving everybody out? Um, the Gainig answer was, uh, Jesus is in Lent, Jesus strips away anything that would get between you and him. So if there's anything that gets between... So he, he angrily sort of strips away the tables, the money, 
the guys, the animals, because the whole thing was a fraud and it got between. Basically, you were cheating the poor. They came, they had to change money, they had to buy, they, they had to bring the money that they had Roman money, they had to change it into Hebrew money, they'd get ripped off with the exchange rate, the poor got more and more oppressed. They would, you could bring your own animal and they'd say, that animal's not up to snuff, you have to buy one of our animals because you have to have a perfect animal. It was basically like a way to pound down. It was basically the payday loan place. That's basically what it was. I'm serious, that's what it was. Poor, good, we'll charge you 4,000% interest this year because we're pretty sure you can pay that. You know, and that, so here's the thing, Karen, and this goes back to a previous thing, which is, oh, there is such a thing as righteous anger. I don't know anybody who can do it except Jesus, right? So, yeah, Jesus was angry. He wasn't violent, and he was doing a holy work. And occasionally when God does a holy work, you know, it, um, boy, it's pretty devastating. But the imitation of that is a dangerous thing. Um, and an awful lot of people appoint themselves as God's representative here on earth, and that almost always goes bad. Yes, please. Yes. He was a tax collector. Yes. It's one of the finest. It's one of the four finest gospels. You're exactly right. You're exactly right, Don Orton. You'll probably be at Matthew's table. He'll probably be like, John, come sit here. Or the Orton's for two, please. You know, it'll be like that, though. Yeah, right. I mean, people can be redeemed from that, right? <laughs> All right, so here's the thing. The first thing is, is when you, first, when you look at the first words, Father, forgive them, uh, we're trying to see something more. And one of the more things is, you don't need to be angry, and you can be forgiving. And being angry wastes your time. And being angry at people uses up your life in ways that your life doesn't need to be used up in. There you go. Um, $75 an hour, you can bill it to your insurance on the way out the door. Okay, good. <laughs> The second thing, um, today you'll be with me in paradise, Luke 23. Now, I didn't do this in the sermon, but there's this very interesting thing where um, James and John basically say, when you come into your glory, can we be at your right and left? Which, when you think about that, where is Jesus in his glory? On the cross. So to be on his right and his left would mean what? Yeah, they should get the thieves down and they should hang up St. John and, and, and St. James because that's what they're asking for because they think glory as, you know, powerful and manipulative and having your way and being boss. They don't know what they're talking about. But um, for Jesus, you know, the great irony of this is it's always interesting when people, this is how it always is with bullies. At the end of the day, bullies always get found out and turned around. It takes a while sometimes. You watch Bully Beatdown? See, you, get a, you need to get cable. Do you know this show? Do you ever, do you ever, who never seen it? Yeah, there you go. Finding an honest man in here. It's, it's the bull, it's, I can watch 30 seconds of it and I can't watch anymore. Basically what they do is there's always some bully somewhere in some neighborhood and they bring him and they put him in a cage with a professional cage fighter. Think about it. They always think they're the toughest guy. Nobody can take him. And they walk him in and they basically, these guys wet themselves and try to run out of the ring. That's basically what happened. They pounded. You can apparently sell advertising around this and make a good... You know, week after week. You know, what happens is, is that bullies always get found out. Well, so what's the great surprise? This is the great surprise of the three days of the triduum. That just means the, the, 20, the, the 72 hours from Monday, Thursday evening, Good Friday evening, Saturday evening, Sunday evening. It's just triduum just means the three days. It's the three great days of the church. And you'll know this because what will happen is starting with Monday, Thursday, pay attention, there's no benediction. 
which basically means we'll go for about an hour on Monday, Thursday, and then we're going to presume that you're worn out. And then you're going to come back on Good Friday and get worn out some more. And then you're finally going to come back to the Easter Vigil or come back on Easter Sunday. And finally then, for the first time in 72 hours, you're going to get a benediction. Because that's seen as one long story. Well, what's the story? The story is that bullies don't win. That's part of the story. The story is they think they're more powerful than Jesus is. And they think they've crushed him. And they think about glory in the sense of being in charge of other people. And the great surprise, of course, is that there's something bigger than this. I always, I find it so interesting that there's always at, you know, there's always things at another level. You know, there's always somebody, there's only one smartest guy in the world. There's only one richest guy in the world. You know, kind of, and if you think about that in the right way, it's very, very freeing, you know. But there's always another level of stuff going on. Well, what happens is, is they crucify Jesus and everybody has this big sigh of relief, like, they're dead already? Okay, let's go home and have dinner. Well, of course, the next, you know, 72 hours are quite revealing that Jesus comes back and he has you in tow with him. And so, you know, Jesus gets mocked, and and that must have been, you know, one of the most horrible things that happens on the cross is the way that people mock Jesus. I mean, there's there's nothing worse when you're in pain and suffering that people mock you for your pain. It's just a, it's just a horror. It just you know it whatever is physical or mental it also becomes psychic. You know it just it, it bundles up all your pain and increases it. So you know they mock Jesus and yet Jesus comes round and says, um, "This is where I'm doing my best work. This is my throne," which is not the way, of course, we think about it. So you can go back all to the stuff we talked about beauty and the crucifixion is a blue note and it's sort of that. It's that off-kilter thing that makes everything look straight up and down. It's the strange note that makes everything else sound beautiful. You know, you have to ask yourself, is this, the mo- is this the ugliest thing you've ever seen or the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Well, it's the ugliest thing you've ever seen if you think this is the story about injustice winning. If there's no resurrection, the bullies win, right? But if, in fact, there is a resurrection, and now you have to hear this is why the icon and the altar have to be a single piece. And so as one of you observed, you know, his gaze is down to the chalice and the paten. Very interesting. You have to see the two things together. If this is it, if this is the end of the story, you know, then evil wins, darkness wins, manipulation wins. But if it's not the end of the story then what it means is, is that even though you'll suffer like this from time to time, the ultimate glory is in being on the side of what is light and truth and love and ordered and beautiful and communal and fair and merciful. So part of what you have to see, or what I hope you'll see, is when you look at this, you don't just see Jesus um, suffering, but also his glory. He can absorb, Jesus is like this sponge. You know, he absorbs the evil out of the world. It just, it's like, he just draws it out of you, you know. He pulls it all out of you, and that's his glory, his goodness, his holiness. Glory is a technical term. It's how we describe the holiness of heaven when it comes to earth. So at Easter, I'm sorry, at Christmas, 
the angels sing, glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Why? Because heaven has dropped down into a manger. In the same way, each time you come to the Eucharist, the glory of heaven, Jesus comes down from heaven and he puts himself in the chalice. He puts himself on the paten. He puts himself on your tongue. His glory is to touch you with his holiness and make you holy. And you're meant to see all of that in the connection between, you know, even his posture, his position, even the way his eyes are directed. He points you to the Eucharist, and that's why the Eucharist is the center of life. That's why the altar is elevated. That's why it holds the center of the room. That's why everything surrounds about it, or surrounds it. That's why the same thing, the same red stone at the, at the font is the same red stone that's around the altar, because this is your life. And at the center of your life is this, that even when you're mocked, even when you're powerless, even when life is unjust, even when people hurt you, even when you're betrayed, right? Every sin is a betrayal. There's no sin. Every sin starts with a lack of gratitude. That's the genesis for every sin, a lack of thankfulness, a lack of gratitude. And every sin is a betrayal. And that's exactly how it plays out in your own life. And nevertheless, um, that's not the last word. So hopefully, when you look at this, what you see is hopefulness um, rather than um, despair. And again, you, you get, there's just, there's just a peace in that body. I mean, there's a glow in that body. There is, the body is dead or maybe it's alive. Maybe, you know, maybe, but it's not, that is not a hopeless, that is not, there's a, darkness is the way of death. That body glows, you know. That body is the way of life. And that's what you're meant to see. Don, please. Right. That's right. Right. It is. We talk about proper justice or proper righteousness. And then what's the other side of the coin? His, Jesus, do you remember this from your confirmation somewhere? Alien righteousness. So on your own, justice is that you're done for, right? But he dies for you, and he gives you his justice as a gift, justification, righteousness, holiness, however we talk about that, right? And so then when Jesus, I mean, this is the strangest thing. When Heavenly Father looks at you right now, he knows it's you, but he sees Jesus. It's this strange, weird thing. He sees Jesus when he looks at you, and so he sees holiness. The other trouble with justice is is that justice, human justice is changeable, right? Right? So it depends on, you know, uh, according to my standards. So for, so for some people, 9-11 was the most just pe- thing that ever happened. And for other people, it was the most unjust thing that ever happened. That's a very interesting debate. Even like this whole thing in Florida with the young fellow who was shot by another guy. That thing is so convoluted when you think, when you look. But on each side, everybody's crying for justice. But they are talking past each other, Right. What would solve it? What would solve it? If everything was in, in the end that's true, in the end if everything was in the light. If every detail was known about every action and about every heart, that would solve it. However, in this life that doesn't happen, and so mercy is the only thing that can um, make it right. But we're not very good at that. We're not very good at mercy because we want to win. 
If you need uh, an example of that, look no farther than what a presidential campaign does to a bunch of normal, upstanding human beings. I'm serious. Do you actually, on either side, on any side, do you want any of those people for president after <laughs> what apparently everybody knows about them, what everybody said about them? Would you want, let's have Jack Smith be the president for crying out loud. I mean, Jack, I'm writing you in, buddy, because, you know, at least I know what I'm getting, right? Yes, please. On the history of the resurrection? Mystery. Right. That's right. Well, there's a couple of different ways to talk about that. So the, the question about where Jesus goes after he ascends, he goes into the presence of the Father. Um, uh, the, the question usually where it bogs down is um, sometimes evangelicals will say his body and blood are captive in heaven and they can't get out. It's the easiest way to say it. That he's got a body just like mine, and so you know, it only roughly goes, you know, six, six one by six one, and um, you know it's there and it can't get down to the Eucharist. You know, the problem, of course, with that is Jesus is a one-off who has a divine nature, and Lutherans are always big about if you don't have the body, you don't have a God, and so that's what separates us. We're much closer to the Catholic interpretation than the Evangelical interpretation on this. The word is is yeah is makes a difference, right? Okay, so um, I push you on then. What I'd first like you to see is, you know, when you look at this, one thing you can think about is you don't need to be angry and you can be forgiven. The second thing you can think about is at the end of the day, God sorts it out. You know, um, people can bully you, people can be hard on you, but at the end of the day, and, and I got to tell you, sometimes it's very hard to wait till the end of the day. You know, I, I know, I mean, I know uh, sometimes it's very hard to wait till the end of the day. Nevertheless, I will say to you, at the end of the day, uh, you don't live very long, to be honest with you. I mean, even old Harold Lang. Harold Lang was just a blip on the, you know, on the big life speedometer. What did Harold go, 106, 104? What do we do? Yeah, I mean, you lose track after 100. I mean, uh, even Harold is like, I mean, he's just like a boop. And then, you know, against eternity, that's not very long. Don't waste your life on that stuff. At the end of the day, and you're not going to live that long, you know, you're going to live, you know, 80 years if you're lucky. If you stick around with Harold, smoke and drink you know, do all the stuff Harold did, you might live to 100, okay? So, uh, you know, uh, God bless you, but that's not very long. The end of the day is actually not as long as you think it is. So try to use your life in love and not in anger and in kindness and mercy and not in trying to squash other people down to get ahead and certainly not darkness to get your way. All that is in the cross. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and you know, you've all said this. I got to think you've all said this. I'm, a, I'm kind of dead. Did flip the page. Um, you know, you can sort of, you can sort of say this anytime you've really suffered, when you've been betrayed, um, um, you realize you didn't know him at all. Or alternately, somebody that you knew really, really well goes over to the dark side, and that can happen to people. Um, you know, we get our idols and we go to the dark side. Uh, and that can just, that can blow everything up. And you feel forsaken. You feel all alone. The people that you thought you could really count on, you know, have left you. Um, of course, Jesus is the only one who can really, really say that. Uh, what happens on the cross, um, this, is, this is brisk to the point of, of vulgar, but true. What happens on the cross is that the Father damns the Son. 
And that's a, that's a very difficult thing to say. You know, but if you, just, if, you just do the, if you just do the math, so the Father, the Son, takes all your sins. Jesus takes away your sins, and he puts them to himself. I actually, do you know, I had somebody who transferred out of the congregation when I preached on this. About six months after I was here, I preached on the text, he who knew no sin became sin. I mean, the text is very clear. It's not just that it says he takes sin. He actually became sin. He absorbed it. You know, he, he took it in. He owned it. He, he, it was as if he, they were his own. He who became sin for us, you know. That's a horrible, horrible thing to think about. But Jesus, this is another place where Jesus is a one-off. That Jesus is damned for your sins so that you don't have to be damned. This is why he can look, the Father can look at you and say, I love you. Because there's nothing to hate in Don. Marilyn, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. There's nothing to hate in Don. <laughs> the rest of us have all noticed this. Yes, I just, we're just waiting for you to catch up, right? Because there's not anything to hate in them when Jesus is taken away. You can't hate anybody in the church because Jesus has taken away their sins. But it does, in fact, mean then the ultimate, you know, the ultimate abandonment is, is hell, where, you know, God, there is no gracious presence from God. And to not have any hope, not to have any grace is not to have any hope. To not have any hope is to be utterly abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, here's the thing. Um, you have to go all the way through the darkness to get to the light in this case. And that's why, just as an aside, your own spiritual darkness from time to time, I've regularly said to you, and spiritual darkness is very different than being caught in a sin. Okay, So I'm not talking about... You've done evil, you've touched something evil, it's sticking to you, you can't get rid of it, you've got a bad habit, you're perpetually, you know, addicted to something, perpetually doing an evil thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the normal spiritual darkness where, from time to time, the world pushes back against you, okay? That's why the, nor the way... Through spiritual darkness is the way through, one step in front of another. You just keep doing the same thing. And you'll notice Jesus does that. Why have you forsaken me? But you'll notice that he doesn't do what Job's wife encouraged Job to do when he was great suffering, which was what? Curse God. Curse God and die. And what you don't see in Jesus is that he curses, he does not curse God and die. He accepts the abandonment. Now it's torturous. Okay, it's convulsing in how, how horrible it is. Everything you've ever done, everything I've ever done, every sin that's been done, body, soul, mind, spirit, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So he absorbs all that, and if you're going to hold on to sins, then ultimately the Heavenly Father pushes you away. I mean, if you ultimately say, I'll hold these sins. So what happens is this very strange thing where Jesus holds to your sins, not his own. And yet he holds them clear to the end, and he takes what he knew was coming, which is this, this, this horrible abandonment. His abandonment, that his abandonment is final, means that yours will never be final. It means your darkness is not going to last forever. I mean, I know, again, I'm pushing you toward a very long view of things. But you have to remember that as a Christian, you live your life backwards from the eschaton. You live your life backwards from the final judgment. You start with the final judgment that the Lord has sorted it all out, and you live your life backwards. That relativizes your entire life. 
So when you go through the day, you don't waste your time on anger, you don't waste your time on hate, you don't waste your time on dark, you don't waste your time touching evil things. You realize that all of that has been done in Christ. And so what you see when you come here and say, you know, what, one of the things you see is that Jesus was abandoned, so, here's the positive, I'm never alone and I'm never unloved. Jesus was abandoned, so you don't have to be abandoned. Jesus was alone, so you don't have to be alone. In fact, it's a lie for any Christian to say, I'm alone. Why? Because it's your baptism. Jesus put his name on you and sticks by you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in you. Don't you know that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? And when you go to the Eucharist today, you walk away, as Paul says, bearing the wounds of Christ in your body. You bear the body and blood. What happened here goes, slides down from this crucifix into the chalice and on the paten and is put into you, and you carry that in you, right? You're never alone. You always carry Jesus with you, which is why when you die, you can't possibly be damned or even punished because he's already been punished. And so when, you, when people say, you know, why should Jesus let you, this stupid, stupid thing where, you know, evangelist, why should Jesus let you into heaven? That's the stupidest question. What have you done that Jesus, it's like, didn't do anything. Hey, take a look at this, right? Look right, just, when you get to heaven, just point to your forehead, you know, where the holy name was put on you. Um, just, you know, it's inside you. It'll be, like, it'll be like going through the turnstile at the Bulls game. Believe me, they're moving people through. Because you got tickets and here you go. Last thing, Karen, because otherwise Jonathan's going to say that two-minute thing, and it makes me so sad when he does that. Go ahead. 